Welcome to Me and Mary Jane with your host, Patricia A. Patton. So we're back today for part two of our conversation with Danielle Schumacher. She is the co-founder of the THC Staffing Group. Uh, last time, because uh, I listened to the first portion of the recording, it's very interesting if I must say so myself. <laughs> How are you today? I'm pretty good today. Okay. All right. Well, it's nice long summer in the Chicago suburbs. So just uh, enjoying the, I guess, the silver lining of that. <laughs> yes. I, I'm already planning for a 20 degree drop this coming Friday. Right. Right. Yeah. So I'm just, trying not to be sad. Right. Yeah. Just got to go with the flow of the seasons. Exactly. So, you know, one of the things that you said as we wound up last time was that um, you, you stress the importance of a good overview of the industry and the specific sectors within it. And I got a real clear understanding of how you happen to have come by that. And you, what you said was that you don't really speak with data, but because of your experience, having worked with so many different people in the industry who worked with different aspects of it itself, that it you turned that knowledge and experience into a business out of necessity because you couldn't remain an activist forever. You know? So one of the, I would say, one of the primary propositions of your business is that you're a living brand and you don't just deal with any client. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about THC staffing groups decision to go with that, like not just take any client who will pay you. Yeah. And I learned so much about myself when you tell me about myself. <laughs> so thank you for that summary. <laughs> right. Um, because first, uh, Last time after the first part, I was kind of left with a feeling of groundedness in what THC staffing was founded upon. Oh, and no, it's you're good. And <laughs> and and here and and thinking of, you know, how much we've shifted back and forth a little bit over the years, uh, because to that point of, you know, not just any client, um, we were founded in 2014 and at that time there was a much wider range of companies to work with as far as uh you know on a national level different sizes of companies um similar to now there's the whole range of startups and um small businesses uh the big difference is uh how big of a market share the MSOs have now, the multi-state operators, and um, a big difference is all the really large companies based in Canada um, that have merged 
um, acquired or merged with uh, large companies here in the U.S. So in the beginning and then at different times along the way, we sometimes will work with um, a corporation, a large corporation, um, if it's in line with our mission. So I think um, to answer your question, um, it always comes back to the mission. And in some ways, I think of it as the umbrella of the company. Um, everything should fall under that umbrella and be aligned with our mission. Um, but that's an ideal world. <laughs> we we do try to stick to that ideal. Number one way we're able to do that just uh, logistically is we have, we've always had other income. Um, I don't think it's realistic to be so idealistic um, if you need to make a, a large profit um, and, and employ multiple full-time people. I, I can't speak to how that actually would work. Um, I think it is possible um, to really stick to a mission-based uh, model um, and and only work with companies that you either know directly or the company can somehow demonstrate that they are really providing um, a non-toxic work environment. Mm -hmm. um, and because part of our mission is to uh, work with companies who genuinely are trying to provide an inclusive work environment, that could mean a lot of things and it's never really achieved. I don't think any company can really say they're truly a safe space and completely inclusive that in my opinion, that just doesn't exist. Um, but we can, we can look at it on a spectrum of companies that are a lot safer space and a lot more inclusive than others. Um, so, yeah, so that's the broad answer, um, you know, uh, as, as far as how I frame it and what guides me um, to be making decisions on individual clients. Okay. And if it was an MSO, how do I decide if I'm going to work with them and in what way, right? Like companies approach us all the time with requests. It do doesn't mean that we can fulfill those requests, but we can try to find ways to work with them. It might not be everything that they want our help with or everything that falls under HR consultant, for instance, but, um, but what's our common ground? What can they, and what can they afford? You know? So another caveat of all of this is really the, the companies that I, I feel best about working with often can't afford um, a somewhat of a luxury <laughs> service of DEI recruiting and consulting. I wish that it was built into the fabric of every company and every HR department. Um, and to, to be real, like if it was built into the, the regulations that um, hold cannabis companies accountable to doing all of the work that falls under DEI work. I mean, that term is completely overused, so we can get into that a little bit more. But um, yeah, that's that's some of our, our guiding principles. And so that's why it shifts over time. Like, do we have time to take on a new client? Um, what kind of client is it? Um, what proof do we see um, that they're really doing what they say they're doing? Um, or 
what what signs either green flags or red flags do we get in the intake process that um they're going to follow through on the things that they're saying they want to do with us because we've seen a whole range of you know intentions and and discussion and then what are the actual outcomes i mean i don't have the the statistics in front of me but we work on a lot of searches and projects that um, don't end up um, resulting in somebody who's been impacted by the war on drugs um, actually getting decent employment. That's a very small percentage of the outcomes that it is ends up being really in line with our mission. Often it, it kind of fizzles out because the company either isn't um, really able to do the work that we want to do with them or um, they end up hiring through some other means. So under ideal circumstances, when you, when you, when I am trying to understand what makes sense to the firm, the THC staffing group, what's best practices for DEI? You know, like what needs to happen in that mix? I mean, is it just, you know, a person of color having a front facing job where they can like doyle out a few things to other people of color? I mean, what makes the difference and what for you is a current definition of DEI? Because I would think that that shifts also, you know? Yeah, well, for recruiting, um, it's a full cycle process. It's not one or two things that the company can check off a list to say that they did diversity recruiting um, because diversity recruiting, first of all, requires you to actually hire somebody who brings diversity to your team <laughs> um, and diversity in line with who's been most impacted by the war on drugs. In, in this context, right, the kind of work that I do, we're speaking specifically about um, black and brown people in the U.S., um, it, we have to narrow it down at least to that. And then within that, as far as deciding who's most impacted and um, and what kind of employment is best and do, it, it's really about what, what are they seeking? Are they seeking employment? What kind of employment? And um, would they even wanna work <laughs> for any of these existing companies? There's very few number of companies that um, I can recommend as a good, good work environment that I would feel good about being an employee of. So um, that's not a good look. <laughs> right. At it, all. Right. Because there's so many things along the way, right? Like recruiting people to me is the, is um, it's not superficial, but it's, and it's not easy, but it's, um, and it is a lot of what our company does. Um, but what's the point of recruiting diverse candidates if uh, the hiring process is just going to filter them out right away. Because what I noticed was that um, I've seen job descriptions for people who are experienced growers, breeders, and then I've seen the requirements attached to that that says you need a botany degree and, um, you know, not a, everything but a PhD. So, I don't know how a person who has 30 years of growing in the legacy market moves over to something like that. 
Except to own a situation themselves. Except to own, yeah. Especially now in some states, um, New York is an example where a lot of companies are taking the approach that um, the legacy experience doesn't count and they don't want to see it on a resume. Um, They're uncomfortable talking about it. Um, That can be when a market is new, um, when the people who are doing the hiring, like the owners and hiring managers, when they're new mm-hmm. to cannabis, when they're still carrying stigma to with the plant themselves, like maybe they don't even use cannabis um, because there's a lot of owners and and upper level managers in this industry who don't use cannabis or they still have a hierarchy <laughs> in their mind of like CBD is okay. Like mm-hmm. CBD ingestible products are okay, or tinctures are okay, but smoking is somehow this different thing, or um, dabbing that is still seen as this um, negative thing, um, dabbing concentrates. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot to to navigate, um, even within a cannabis company where you it's reasonable to think like that it's okay to talk about legacy experience or that that experience will be valued. Um, but that's not a guarantee, unfortunately. And then also like there's big companies putting out press releases and saying they're, you know, that they make every attempt to hire formerly incarcerated people and people most impacted from disproportionately impacted areas, blah, 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 all the buzzwords under social equity, more specifically now social equity is (laughs) uh, under that umbrella of DEI. It's the E, the equity piece. Um, It's so complicated um, because you can say you're making every attempt to hire um, equitably, but um, there's so much uh, to along the way that that you have to do to to even be able to say you're trying to do that. So, um, yeah, yeah, to your point, the legacy experience and and people without um, some kind of science degree or horticulture, especially now that there's more and more accredited programs. Right. Um, basically now we're seeing an accreditization of the cannabis industry, meaning more barriers to entry um, for employment, because if you don't have the necessary accreditations, whether it's mainstream or cannabis specific education, um, then you're being excluded from the job pool. I I saw a little of that last week in a very subtle, unnamed way. I emceed the um, medical medical channel during the uh, Cannabis Science Conference. And Mm. so over two days, I saw, um, you know, doctors who had researched for many years and have product lines, nurses. Um, clinical directors, you know, um, individuals tell their story, but there was clearly a hierarchy Mm. about value, you know, the value of people's contribution, even though, you know, in that context, there was an acceptance of anecdote and non-FDA research as verifiable a basis for, for science, you know, uh, even without FDA approval, but still you could see inside that. 
So the one thing rambling on that I was thinking about when you were talking was there are people, I won't name anybody, <laughs> but I'm just thinking about there are people who are considered linchpins in this industry that don't have PhDs or anything like that. Oh. They just happen to be mostly white men. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, it's not about race. It just happens to yeah, be. Yeah, it just happens. <laughs> you know, they don't have PhDs or even a BA, but mm. white men who have been in the industry for 40 years and they lead all kinds of organizations and are authorities. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and unfortunately, they are in business with a lot of the same industries who have these restrictive. Um, botany degree requirements for folk to run their businesses. Yes. So, you know, it's just, I guess it's just the way of the world and it's more uh, reason to have your eyes open and, and to have, because what I'm realizing is that there is a real importance for people who are uh, legal and legacy to be in conversation with each other. Mm. You know, that, that that's kind of like a false barrier. I mean, given your experience though, you've crossed well, all lines, you know, do you feel that uh, you can see better about what the future is gonna be? Hmm. I mean, in 2010, you and Shalene were already looking at the fact that in 2020, the workforce was going to need to be looked at and handled in some way. Yeah. So can you look out 10 years now and you have any feeling about which way to go or how you're going to need to shift mm. what you do? Yeah. Um, we thought we knew what was going to happen and we were wrong. We, we thought it was going to take a lot longer for the, for legalization to spread nationally. Um, yeah, we thought for sure. I mean, 20 years, but this was 20 years ago, even right. 15 years ago, I didn't believe federal legalization was going to happen in my lifetime. So that timeline has definitely been moved up. Um, and then we thought, the corporate takeover was more of a conspiracy theory than reality, but we realized very quickly, pretty much with a little bit more real world experience, once we got, you know, out of college and into full adult life, realizing, oh no, that's real. It's already happening. So yeah. the corporate takeover is here now. Um, you know, that's already past tense. We're, we're navigating that now. So the future I've accepted is, corporations having the vast majority of the market share. I, I wish that I felt differently. I wish that I saw a different future. Um, but I do believe that the largest companies are going to continue to have this massive percentage. What is it like at least 75%? Mm -hmm. We don't really know for sure. Right. But in a state like Illinois, it's, literally a hundred percent MSOs that run the market right now. Mm -hmm. so I'll start with that example. There is like a little bit of, I don't even believe in the concept of hope anymore. It's just like, there is um, a, 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 a small percentage of small 
and local companies that will be opening and operating in Illinois um, next year. Um, so on a small scale, we'll, I'll be able to see change in Illinois it, within a year. Um, but then a year later, how many of them will still exist and how many of the social equity licenses that have been given out in Illinois in the last few years, and there's hundreds of them, um, dispensaries, cultivation, manufacturing, um, sorry about the background noise. <laughs> um, yeah, so of those hundreds of social equity businesses in Illinois that in theory will be opening over the next few years, how many of them will successfully open? Will they ever make a profit? Will And I believe that the majority of them will end up being acquired um, by the largest companies. So even when they're small scale, um, change in the way that I would like to see it changing. Um, that's temporary, unfortunately. It, but of course, there's pockets around the country where there's enough local support and enough demand for supporting small businesses that that there will be some. I don't think that the largest corporations will take over completely. That's that's never going to happen because there's going to also there's going to always be a thriving legacy market and um, the unregulated market will always be there. <laughs> if anything, that will just get bigger and look a little different and thrive in our like late stage capitalism. Right. Because what I can see in the future is now that cannabis is already mainstream, it, it still has a long way to go to truly right. be mainstream, like with banking and whatnot, of course, and getting everybody out who's still incarcerated for it. There's so much, like that's our lifetime of work right. that I see our lifetime of work will continue to be some of these basic things like, hey, did you know there's still people in prison for this? <laughs> really, people still don't know that. You know, there's lots of people who still don't know that. So that's going to always be something we have to work on. And if we ever can, if Last Prisoner Project can ever declare their twisted victory, um, <laughs> uh, is that really true that there's nobody still incarcerated because we're going to have to keep an eye on that the there's the system is going to continue to find ways to incarcerate people and exclude people from ownership and employment no doubt um but as the industry blends more with with other parts of our full like whole economy um it'll continue to shift and look differently over time in in a lot of ways hopefully for the better that like you know there will be more unions more cannabis companies unionized uh not that those are a magic fix but you know th with the union at least you know it should be a little safer of a work environment and that over time um there will be more um there'll be increased pay and benefits um and accountability ish <laughs> you mentioned safety a few times like earlier yeah. in our conversation is, is that generally speaking that the environment you know is is not safe uh right right two i'd say two main layers of safety one is physical mm -hmm. safety um, especially in manufacturing and cultivation. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of machinery. Um, there's a lot of different kinds of um, chemicals. Um, and in, the, in a lot of cannabis cultivation and manufacturing facilities, 
Um, people are not paid very much. They don't have a lot of training, um, but they're expected to work with a bunch of chemicals and, and heavy machinery. Um, so there's that. There's just like the mainstream, like OSHA, um, what should be like basic physical safety, environmental safety. Then there's the rampant sexual harassment um, and um, harassment based on race and all kinds of stuff going on. So the, the, the more like emotionally safe and um, for people to feel that it's safe to have the identity that they have at work and to speak the way that they and to speak other languages in the workplace, things like that, that um, of course, none of this is unique to cannabis or you know this industry, but um, there are so many people running the businesses and managing the facilities who um, either have been doing this for years with the mindset that they can just do what they want. Um, they've even maybe been doing it illegally in the past. And so they still have that mindset that like they can treat employees however they want and um and there's just going to be this endless supply of um workers <laughs> right um right and so how far out do you see federal legalization because in five years for me um of trying to see what's going on this conversation in the last year and the organizations that have sprout up, sprung up rather, about focusing specifically on federal legalization. Do you think that's really coming in the next five years? I think so. I think we need to be prepared mm -hmm. in case that is the case, um, because it could very well pass in the next five years. It, it will take decades to be implemented um and cleaned up um but if it does pass in the next five years we can't be caught off guard and out of the loop i, I mean cory booker is pretty determined <laughs> uh to be part of that and say what you will about him and it, it's definitely not a perfect proposal but um just he's just one example of an elected official who I think is pretty safely elected. Like a lot of the leaders of the federal elected elite uh, leaders for legalization um, will probably continue to be reelected, or even if they are not reelected, they're they're going to continue to for this to be one of their main issues right so that's why i think it's probably happening because there's such a big it, it's almost like they're competing now to be the one who gets to take credit for it that's totally new that didn't come out of nowhere but that's the the aspect of it that feels very compelling to me that there's people elected to congress who are competing to get to take credit for having a hand in legalizing it and what do you think do you think that like the who's president and who has the majority in congress is is a big factor in legalization at this point i don't off the top of my head i would say i don't think who's president has as much to do with it as who's in the senate and the house of representatives it's like mm -hmm. yeah because i think that 
Yeah, that's what I really think. I think that the president is moved by what those two chambers are doing. And mm -hmm. that um, because that's where he's really getting his support and from their constituents and other people with money. That would be my guess. But mm -hmm. I, I can't remember being as focused on the politics of something other than civil rights as I am on you know, cannabis because so many things are embedded inside the emergence of this industry. So you can see so many things at play. You know, you could talk just about social justice as it relates to one aspect of mm. the whole thing, or you could talk about it generally speaking. Right. You know. Yeah, I I think that it truly is a bipartisan issue be also because, I mean, as far as cannabis legalization, because it also is such a, it, it touches such a wide range of, for instance, con congressional committees, yeah. um, just every aspect of public life and every different policy committee has something to do with this. And so I really believe that that's, well, first of all, that's what really drew me to this work that it brings people together. It it's if you make positive change, it it has a positive impact on all aspects of society mm -hmm. in some way. And so I also believe that that's why it's going to continue to evolve in a hopefully in a um, progressive way. Um, because even if you know, with most issues. Republicans and Democrats are like, you know, there's a line between them, there's division. And so um, a lot of them naturally just are excited about an issue like this that's truly bipartisan, where, you know, it's it's finally something that they can build common ground with somebody across the aisle. And they can say, okay, we don't really agree on anything else, but hey, let's talk more about legalization, drug legalization. What is that? going to look like for us and the work that we do and everything that we disagree on right we, we're going to have to figure that out because people have are really accepting that it's it's happening now and so i did want to segue quickly back to the part of your question about how as far as how i see the future and then what does that mean for thc staffing shifting mm -hmm. um that's a whole phase that i'm really deeply in right now even before covid i was really figuring that, trying to figure that out. Um, but I also know that part of that is I have to just continue to be available for what I'm needed for, like what is my role or I guess destiny or <laughs> um, in this, this world. And you're one of the people that um, I can talk with that, as I said before, like it really helps me figure that out, like knowing you and then you knowing me and kind of teaching back to me what you learned from me, <laughs> um, that that's really compelling. And that's what continues to um, kind of be the underlying thing that I do is building the relationships and, and adapting to what's needed and applying my perspective, whatever, like that might be broad, the kinds of things you and I've been talking about today, or it might be really specific when it comes to um, a job description and the appropriate salary range, you know. Um, a, an ongoing theme for me with my work is it always goes back to policy, whether I like it or not. I'm often asked to 
um, help people prepare to lobby, even though I feel like I don't even do any lobbying anymore, but I did so much lobbying in the past. Um, lobbying and networking. So that to me, that's all about relationships. And so for instance, five years from now, it is possible I'd be involved in something on a national scale um, if we're looking at federal legalization. Um, I'm, I'm, I might end up in some sort of government position. I'm not opposed to that because I do think that like my business partner, Shalene, um, you know, knew that she had to answer that call um, to be a commissioner for Massachusetts. Um, you know, sometimes we have to have people on the inside, um, especially if they've been helping prepare that path <laughs> um, for that to happen. Um, so yeah, that, that was also, that's the thing I wasn't expecting all of the government departments. And I mean, that makes sense that we would need that. I just hadn't really thought that through that. And then now looking in the future, oh, maybe I, I would work for the government on some level. So I need to be open to that. I think I have to really stay open to um, where I'm needed and to, to start to shift more into leading and not managing mm -hmm. because I tend to just want to be behind the scenes with a spreadsheet and now I'm like really into using Canva to design things myself. So like I could easily just be on the back end or even work in some other industry and just be quiet. Um, but I, I know we'll, I'll continue to be drawn or, or being asked to participate in things that are more. <laughs> I've watched you, I've watched you um, nurture and uplift the people in your circle or the people who you have an affinity for or feel are doing good work that is for the better good you know that is for the wide good and um i know that uh the mentoring project that you've collaborated with another organization with is part of the process of like getting people ready and feeling comfortable in their own skin to be more of who they are in this industry. Because, you know, I could say I want to run a dispensary. I'm not qualified, really. I mean, it doesn't mean I couldn't learn to because I have enough sense to find the people I need to run it and teach me at the same time. But not everybody can do that. And I say that, you know, using my ego, but it doesn't mean that it's true, you know. But I'm saying to you that um, I can see you in a larger, I see you coming from the back of the room and inst instead of holding people up, you know, stepping forward and into the fullness of who you are really. And so that does mean that you have to uh, bring all of your gifts from the past to the table to do that. Like, you don't even have to like, say, I know this, I did that. This is my resume, you know, because otherwise you would not be able to even um, expound on what the future could look like, you know, or to begin to see yourself in another dimension, I guess is really what I'm really saying. So, hmm. um, so I'm proud to hear you say that really.
I mean, I'm not responsible. I have nothing to do with it. <laughs> it makes me feel good to hear you say that because that's that's a big shift, I think, in growing and recognizing that, you know, what you have, what you have is important. It's important to the world. It's important to um, your community and people you don't even know. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you... Um, one other thing about um, your focus on the community. So we've talked about uh, particularly people of color, women, um, non-binary, I hope I didn't say the wrong thing, people whose identity is not necessarily this or that. Mm -hmm. And I know that that's really important to you, that you open the world up in a way that we can all feel comfortable in it. I mean, it's it's unnecessary to always have to even identify. It seems like people would just be comfortable with who they are. And I'm rambling now, but really what I'm trying to say is that it's important um, that people in the world like you be in these spaces. Mm. That's really what I'm trying to say, that it's important that people like you be in these spaces and that we not be concerned with what you look like, but more importantly, what you have to say that is about the good of the community. Yeah. Mm. yeah. She goes, hmm, am I really? A yeah, you really are all that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you really are all that. I was afraid you were going to ask me, how did I become that way? Because it's a really difficult answer and um but yeah um and I I think part of what you're getting at also is um it, well I'll add it it's important for instance to have like a POC only space or a woman only space like I especially in this within this industry um and it's also important to have um relation like uh collaborations and organizations that truly um have a range of kinds of uh, range of race and other um aspects of identity represented um we need both yeah. um, and <laughs> just kind of side note that's coming to mind now that i said that out loud i have a hard time with all white spaces <laughs> That's, um, you know, uh, as a white person, um, yeah, I've, I was so sheltered in a way living in the Bay Area for so many years, um, almost 15 years in Oakland, Berkeley, San Francisco, and uh, probably never being in an all white space. <laughs> I mean, on a small scale, yes, I worked at a doctor's office where at times there was like only three, all three people working were white, but um, it was in Berkeley and our patient base was very diverse. So, so yeah, um, I, I've changed so much since uh, moving, you know, going to college in Illinois and then moving out to California to now, I'm like, oh, now I really see things. So it's like more glaring yeah. when I have to um, face my white peers and and feel how uncomfortable they are about a lot of these conversations or to, or to have a conversation with somebody I know who's transphobic. Mm -hmm. um, 
and and to I can see how uncomfortable they are and that I'm totally comfortable <laughs> with the the idea and the real life people who are transgender. Right. I'm I'm totally comfortable with that compared to a transphobic person. <laughs> yeah, it's it's deep. And I think that uh, I mean I'm happy that the world is changing in that way so that um, that we're not policing each other, you know, so much to be something that is comfortable for me. I want to be who I am. So let me let you be who you are, you know? Um, so, all right. I always ramble with you. Um, we've been talking to Danielle Schumacher of the THC staffing group. Um, we might have to edit this because she and I tend to go here and there. <laughs> Good stuff though, because in my opinion, I'm talking to a future leader in her own life, but you know, a leader in the community of work that she chooses to be in. And that's not a static thing, you know, like mm. as the world changes, you'll be changing as well. Mm. You know? So you got space to do that as far as I'm concerned. Best place to reach you is where? If, uh, listeners would like to reach out um if you if you prefer social media i would say instagram uh send a message to the thc staffing account it's at thc staffing um linkedin is a good place to connect with me although um to really just make sure you are on my radar and that it's me that responds my email is danielle at thcstaffinggroup.com so that's a mouthful but uh, my <laughs> name is d-a-n-i-e-l-l-e -L -L -E at and then my email is the same as our website our website has a ton of information it might not look like it at a glance but if you really read through and there's a, a video there and um, that's thcstaffinggroup.com. It looks really good too. I was on there. Thank you. Yeah. Our designer, our longtime designer, Marwa Osman made it and she, it's, uh, yeah, she decided she just had to build it herself like for us because we really were trying to give a feel of what, you know, how we're different from all of the other cannabis staffing groups. So we wanted our website to look and feel different. So I think I didn't do a good job with that then. So the, um, maybe I wasn't clear enough. Employers should be in touch with you or prospective employees should be in touch with oh, you? That's a good question. Um, for sure, employers, I really spend most of my time trying to help employers um, either recruit or create a better hiring process overall. So that's like the most efficient way I can help <laughs> achieve THC Staffing's mission. Um, but candidates, um, yeah, there is still a place where you can submit a resume um, through our website. It's We have a job board, it's often empty. Um, and it's possible that we might sometimes not be taking resumes, um, but you, you know, candidates can contact me directly. I just have um, sometimes limited capacity to give individual advice. Although I do paid advice sessions, um, paid resume reviews. If you know, if you really um, need me to uh, spend some time on it, um, I don't have anybody on my team right now who's doing the 
resume reviews um, for free, like we were able to in the past. Um, but yeah, anybody who hears me through this podcast is welcome to contact me directly, and I will definitely get back to you. And um, make, sure you, I, you make sure you say me and Mary Jane. Or she yeah, yeah. I never want somebody have a dead end unless they're like disrespectful up front, then I'm like, I wouldn't want to work with you. And I probably wouldn't want to include you in a candidate pool if that's how you talk to people. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'll stick it in the, I'll stick it in the uh, notes on the written page. And um, when I use it for PR, I'll mention it as well. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for doing the case study. When we started today, you mentioned that you uh, oh, yeah. appreciate yeah. case studies. And that's the big difference between like data, the qualitative information versus right. like the case studies, the quantitative, like the ethnographic data. So <laughs> thank yeah. you for uh, doing uh, two parts with me. <laughs> oh, no, it's great. It's great. It's like, I, sh I should have said that I am a prospective mentee of one of the programs oh. that uh, Danielle uh, runs with another group. She has a mentorship program and I don't have a mentor yet, but I wanna say that the quality of the programming is quite good. So it was a case study oh, last night that I got to sit in on and it was great. Yeah, and I thank you for mentioning that. I, yeah, with that so much going on, I often, the mentoring program is in the back of my mind, but of course, when the cohort is getting going, it's in the forefront of my mind. And we're right at a point where we're wrapping up. This is our second cohort. So we did one last year in 2021 and now in 22. Um, and I don't know what the future holds for that for next year. Obviously, a mentoring program like ours is very needed. Yeah. Um, and I, my goal would be to continue that. Um, but I, I, since I don't have a specific plan that's why I haven't been thinking about like even mentioning it but it's obviously it's okay for people to know we have a mentoring program and at some point hopefully we can take new new people into the program but yeah Patricia you're an example of somebody amazing who like I would want to find you a mentor first before we start like expanding the program even more you know there's a uh, not a lot of mentors to go around right now. People are having a hard time keeping up with their own stuff, but yeah. even that goes in waves. Yeah. Goes in waves. <laughs> yeah. All so. right. Well, thank you. I will be in touch. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today. Pass the word. Share the love. Like, subscribe, tell a friend can't wait to talk to you again on the next episode. Thank you.